security experts have always been worried about the, the, the obvious power, water. We know how fragile the U.S. is with its legacy infrastructure. Post-COVID, you know, even retail uh, or aspects of retail are, are considered uh, critical infrastructure. CVS, Walgreens, Home Depot, Lowe's, great examples of that. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Dan Holden. CISO at Big Commerce. He's been in the industry 20 plus years now. He's been a vendor. He's been a practitioner. He's done it all. He's a great guy to talk to. He's a deep thinker. And I really wanted him to be on this show when we talked about geopolitics and cybersecurity. Dan, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Real quick before we start, I just wanted everyone to know I have launched my own consulting practice. You can find out more at alanalford.com, A-L-L. A-N-A-L-F-O-R-D dot com. Thanks, y'all. All right, so today's topic is geopolitics and cybersecurity, and obviously that is a very broad topic, but there were some particular threads that you and I had gotten into in our earlier conversation that I thought would be fun to sort of unravel and tug on a little bit. Um, in your mind, what was sort of the the origin of the intersection of geopolitics and, and cybersecurity? I think there have been a couple of different stages, but I think for most of us, you know, if you're talking about most of the, the people involved in the early days of InfoSec, um, primarily Gen Xers, probably the movie War Games in 1984, and then most definitely Cuckoo's Egg by Cliff Stoll in 1988. I, I don't know a single person involved in our industry of our age group that did not read that book and and it, it shaped the rest of their career and therefore their lives i i, I think that was uh you know, lots of people saw war games and it was a pretty rad movie but i think cuckoo's egg was the one that really uh entrenched in us the real world possibilities of geopolitics involvement in uh, cybersecurity. right that was um that was a heck of a story i read it back in college and and brief for the listeners who don't know the story. Uh, we have a gentleman who was basically a systems administrator uh, for some systems at a university campus. Uh, this was back in the days of um, ARPANET when the university campuses were connected up with DOD research facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And essentially, he discovered that the bad guys were coming in through his university using his connection into the DOD world to get into the DOD world. And, you know, bad guys were stealing plans. And this was in the day of dial-up modems. This was long before any kind of real Internet existed. Um, really interesting stuff. And, I mean, one of, the, one of the highlights of that book for me was, just to give you some perspective on, on you know, the technology that was afoot back then, uh, he noticed that the hackers were getting data down at a voracious rate when he still hadn't gotten the authorities involved enough to do something about it. And he thought, I can't stop them, and I don't want to stop them because that'll alert them to my presence, but I can slow them down. There was a serial connection on one of the computers that he literally dangled his car keys across the serial connection, randomly shorting out the wires here and there and slowing down the transmission and making the uh, the baud rate go to go to virtually nil. And, you know, I read that in college and was just like, oh, my God, how cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you another little anecdotal story. Um, so uh, Clifford Stoll was a uh, he was at Berkeley in California, but yep. there were a lot of hops on the way from I believe they were in uh, uh, Germany at the time. Yeah, the bad mm. guys were in East Germany, I think. Right. 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 Um, but anyway, there were a lot of hops starting probably uh it's been a long time, but if I had to guess, probably in D.C. But anyway, you know, hopped across the country and, and until you got to Berkeley. But UT and in, in, in Austin, University of Texas, was one of those universities. <clears throat> Once the FBI was involved, of course, they got all of the other um, hop points, so to speak, involved. And UT Austin was one of them. That's amazing. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Dan and I met one another in Austin. That's where I used to live. That's where Dan lives. That's where... Uh... That's where we got involved. So I had no idea UT was involved in that. That's really cool. Yeah, a little bit of local history. Uh, yeah, one of the <clears throat> one of the regulars at the the pub I frequent, which you've been to, Alan. Uh, yeah. He actually he actually worked that 
I was just, his comment was, you know, he was a an IT guy for UT for I don't know, you know, thirty five years something like that. But uh, his comment about it is always the same. You know, there was no such thing as cybersecurity then, so it was a new world for for him and of course everybody involved. And and I think that's why I go back to it as the the story that really influenced us all. It was a classic case of uh, an attacker looking for the the word that he kept searching for was nuclear. Uh, and so, you know, if you look back on it in terms of both geopolitical and APT or however you want to find these things, it, it really is the, the first big one, I think. Yeah, no, that's 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 it. At least the first big one that got caught and found. Right. Because odds are before that one was found by Cliff Stoll, there might have been other efforts already afoot. And, and that actually leads me to there's a book called Dark Territory uh, written by oh, I can't remember his first name. Last name is Kaplan. And Dark Territory covers the full history of cyber all the way back to, I kid you not, 1967, um, when when the mainframes were first coming around and getting utilized by the DoD. There was a gentleman named Willis Ware who basically, you know, this was even before ARPANET, right? This is back in the pure mainframe era, was warning uh, folks that, you know, hey, the more we use these computers, the more, you know, he didn't have the phrase attack surface back then, but that's basically what he was trying to say was, the more these things exist, the more of a target they become, um, the more they are designed to communicate, spread, and share, and process data, the more of a of a situation they'll get into um, with other folks wanting to tap into that, right? If they're designed to share, then then they're going to share with those who, who we don't want to share with, right? So all the way back in 67... Uh, these warnings were coming out. But but that brings us all the way forward to, you know, the 70s, obviously more mainframe usage. You know, then we get into ARPANET. And that's when uh, War Games came out. And I think, what, 84, the movie War Games came out. And yep. there's an entire story about Ronald Reagan and War Games, the movie. This is when Reagan was president. Um, the gentleman that wrote the script for War Games, uh, Lawrence, and I can't remember his last name either. I'm so bad at all these references. Uh, he went by Larry, but but Larry, as a child, his parents were part of the Hollywood scene, and he used to collect the coats at the Hollywood parties that his parents hosted, and the Reagans were a featured couple back in those days in Hollywood. They were kind of the, the uh, I don't know, the, 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 the leading couple of the Hollywood scene were the Reagans, and so this kid collected the Reagans' coats and put them in the coat closet and, you know, sat around and heard all the Hollywood stories and, and, and listened to the Reagans talk and became friends with them over the years. And so when War Games, the movie, was released, Reagan heard about it through this friend, through this kid that, that was now, of course, a grown-up and reached out to Reagan and said, hey, there's this killer new movie you should see. Reagan watches the movie. Reagan walks away to his cabinet. He pulls all of his generals in and he says, how realistic is this? And, of course, everybody was laughing at first he sent them to go do some research, and they came back with white faces. Um, and and this is this is where the first real cyber law in the U.S. and the first real doctrine in terms of DoD approaches towards cyber all began all the way back in the '80s. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. The, you know, the, a similar story with the movie Day After Tomorrow. When when Reagan first starts his presidency, he's pretty bold. You know, uh, what people typically call kind of cowboyish attitude towards the USSR and and the possibility of nuclear warfare. And then the day after tomorrow comes out and frankly scares everyone. And my understanding is including the president. And that's when he really started working a few years later Then Gorbachev, as you know, comes in and he started working with Gorbachev rather than, um, you know, poking the bear, so to speak. So right. it's a it's a fascinating period of history. You know, obviously, we're living through another fascinating period right now, which I think is why going through the history here is is so relevant yep uh, and, because we're still we're still living out uh, so much of that that history today we are and real quick before we get into the contemporary uh, stories I wanted to briefly hit the 90s too we kind of covered the the late 60s the 70s the the 80s in the 90s you know the Soviet Union collapsed um, but the Cold War was not really over. Uh, and it was during this time period that the NSA and the DOD began butting heads over cyber stuff. Um, the NSA had a had a campaign, a, an exercise where they actually hacked the DOD networks using, uh, I kid you not, off the shelf gear that wasn't even like proprietary, super spooky NSA stuff they were using to do it. They got off the shelf gear and hacked the DOD. This was all the way back in '97. Uh, a couple of months later, two kids in California successfully hacked the DOD. And a few months after that, we caught the Russians in the DOD network. So, so you know, late 90s, uh, and this is, I believe that was all under Clinton, right? 97 was Clinton. Yeah. Um, 
you know, kids kids successfully hacking DOD scary enough. Real Russians in there as well, uh, but also the NSA just totally schooling the DOD. And so um, that got us through the 90s and into the 2000s, and that's when things really changed. General Alexander taking over the NSA, um, you know, strengthening its posture and position, uh, multiple DOD cyber exercises, multiple NSA cyber exercises. The, the early 2000s were, were covered with a lot of activity. And obviously, you know, new law, new policy, U.S. Cyber Command gets created. And I think that kind of uh, is a very quick summary, but that kind of gets us up into our modern times. Yeah, let me add to that, Alan, because mm-hmm. I think the piece that most people don't see, right? We, in other words, we all know the cybersecurity history. What I don't think most people see is the geopolitics surrounding the cybersecurity history. Right. And and the dynamic that changed in the 90s, of course, was, as you highlighted perfectly, the end of the Cold War that really wasn't the end of the Cold War. Um, the Americans wanted it to be over, but no one told Putin that. Um, however, you know, the U.S. really saw that uh, and the West in general really saw that as, all right, now it's time for globalism to really show what it can do. And, you know, why is everybody so worked up about the economy and, and the state of the world? It's frankly because we were in a, a period of time for the last 30 years, you know, starting in the early 90s um, of the biggest economic boom in, in human history. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the amount of people on planet Earth that were brought out of poverty, uh, the immense amount of capital um, that were, was available. That's how we ended up with the dot-com, you know, boom and bust. That's how we ended up. Let's not talk about 08. But the, the point is, 30 years of economic, you know, uh, just crazy tra- trajectory. It has kind of put us in this position where things are retracting or, or reacting. You know, it's a, it's a cause and effect sort of scenario. Uh-huh. And that is what is now influencing, I think, a, a different change in terms of the the, the cyber aspect and, and the risk that we all live with um, as it relates to the geopolitics, uh, as the world now figures out what the next stage is going to be, whatever that might be. But we certainly know that the last 30 years was really good from an economic standpoint. And I, I think it's like so much of history, it takes you looking backwards to even assess and understand what happened. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's the position we're now in. Yeah, and and I would argue if we you know if we want to go back further and and look at the influences and the shapers, we could literally go as far back as the Monroe Doctrine of eighteen twenty three. Um, the the precursors, the causes, and the results of World War One. The same for World War Two, uh, the Cold War, the 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 quote unquote end of the Cold War. Uh, all of these factors and variables tie into um, attitudes that nation states have towards one another that are simply reflected today in uh, cyber activity, right? I mean, we've got, uh, let's see, 2009 Chinese human rights activists' Gmail accounts were hacked by somebody over in China. Go go figure. Uh, 2010 Stuxnet. Um, you know, everybody, I think, has has decided post facto to attribute that one to Israel, but, you know, Iran's nuclear uh Nuclear facilities were shut down by a worm that 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 most would attribute to Israel. Uh, most folks don't know this, but Iran retaliated, and there was a another worm called Shamoon Shamoon uh, that took out Saudi Aramco, and this was directly uh, right after Stuxnet. It was it was almost a direct yeah. response. Let me also mention they they also retaliated against the U.S. and okay. it's it's one of the most public and longest lasting campaigns in cyber history and it's one that's often uh glazed over but uh project ababil in 2013-2014 was a year-long ddos against u.s banking infrastructure and essentially u.s isp infrastructure um meaning iran wanted to understand what kind of offensive capabilities they could have against the u.s economy and i think this is where everything shifts and changes because historically it's always been about the spy versus spy James Bond nonsense. And mm-hmm. and that's why you and I and so many other people love this industry. However, I think this is where the dynamic is now changing. And I think it's why U.S. policy is changing. Yep. I think Project Ababil, on top of uh, uh, Google coming out in 2010 with Project Aurora, APT1, yep. um, Highlighting to everyone, hey, these rumors you've been hearing about APTs in China ripping off everyone's intellectual property, uh, 
it, that's all true and it happened to us and it's been happening to you. And I think uh, the intellectual property theft on top of the infrastructure and uh, I'll, I'll say both ISP and banking infrastructure attack of Vavaville, I, I think those two things together change the dynamic of what is possible. Meaning, sure, we all know that nation states have zero day and you can use those zero day for all sorts of, you know, all sorts of crazy use cases that I don't think most people realize. Uh, but you can also, you know, you can also go after the economy itself, meaning if you want to go after the West, uh, if you want to go after capitalism, it's not just infrastructure, right? We, security experts have always been worried about the, the, the obvious power, water. We know how fragile the U.S. is with its legacy infrastructure. Post-COVID, you know, even retail uh, or aspects of retail are, are considered uh, critical infrastructure. CVS, Walgreens, Home Depot, Lowe's, great examples of that. So more and more, I think foreign entities have a better understanding and capability of affecting possibly another country's economy. And that's changed the dynamic. In other words, it's not about spying. It's not about stealing secrets. It's not even about stealing intellectual property. Now it's about, well, the intellectual property aspect, pretty economic back, economically backbreaking as well. But now it's, can we actually mess with a country's, you know, GDP? Yeah. And I, and I think that's that's where things are going. If if a if a real, you know, war breaks out and cyber war is would obviously be a part of of that. Um, you know, what are the new offensive capabilities? And I think we've moved way past, you know, countries buying super expensive zero day. I think there's a lot more to the to, to the story and the dynamic at this stage. Oh, I fully agree. I mean, Colonial Pipeline, to your point, you know, shocked uh, the, many of us already knew, but but it brought attention to those that didn't already know that critical infrastructure is like, oh, my goodness, it's vulnerable. It's, you know, the bad thing can happen. You know, we can we can shut down infrastructure and all that. Uh, to your point, though, what we consider to be our infrastructure has really, truly changed. Um, the definition of critical infrastructure is not what it used to be. And COVID demonstrated that to your point. Absolutely, it did. Uh, when the economy shut down, when people quit going out, when people stayed home, uh, we saw all these mom and pops go out of business, restaurants, bars, you know, stores, you know, all of these places where people used to gather that people weren't gathering anymore. And we saw a massive economic downturn as a result of that. And if if something like people not going out can can have such a devastating impact on the economy, then then you can see where, you know, cyber would want to step in. Let me, uh, I'll say that everything has a reflection. And so to your point about COVID, you know, brick and mortar effect, it, it also had a reflection in, on the internet, <clears throat> the going the opposite direction. You know, e-commerce absolutely exploded. Right. Uh, whether it was brick and mortar shops or the the mom and pop, you know, shops. And, and it really solidified that e-commerce is not only here to stay, but it's, you know, the new normal of shopping to a great degree, especially as it relates to uh, buying straight from, uh, you know, social networking type platforms. So the whole the whole dynamics changed. And I think what most pundits would say is COVID really accelerated a lot of that change. Right. Um, so what I'm seeing is. I, I think that realization, just like we alluded to with Day After Tomorrow and, and 1980 uh, War Games, um, is the, the feds are realizing how delicate we are, right? In other words, they understand how delicate the, the water and power situation is. But now right. they've also realized how delicate potentially the economic impact can be. You know, GDP is everything for a country. Yep. Uh, you know, why why is... Why is everybody freaking about uh, freaking out about the uh, the political situation in the UK? Well, unstable governments don't provide for stable trade, and right. if you're not trading, you're not you're not you're not having a, a good day with your your GDP. So that's I, I think even prior to Ukraine, you know, it had started. We had um, Obama, you know, in China uh, talking about hey, you know, knock it off with the intellectual. Uh, property theft. You had Biden literally right before the Ukraine invasion, um, pushing Putin on ransomware. Yep. And then you've had every agency since then pushing and pushing and pushing. And so, you know, I don't, I don't think it's been said aloud. And and some people might hear this and and think, oh, you know, this seems pretty obvious, but maybe not. You've got the FTC pushing. You've got the SEC pushing. You've got the uh, that new agency. Um, what CFPB, I think it's called. 
on top of, like I said, you know, even even the president. So it seems to me that every agency is making a push for greater cybersecurity. And I think why that's happening is that after that 30 years of economic growth, now we're essentially having a retraction of that, that globalization we have. Yeah. So you've got uh, a ton of U.S. agencies pushing for uh, greater cybersecurity and greater disclosure. Um, and so let me liken this to uh, compliance, you know, something like PCI. Uh, initially, you know, we were all annoyed and, and how many, you know, security folks were talking about uh, compliances and security. Well, all of these years later, the, the real magic, frankly, of PCI is that it evened the playing field. It forced businesses to spend on security. Mm-hmm. Now, we all know that didn't make them secure, but it did make them better. And I think now we're seeing more and more regulation, more and more federal pressure. Um, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the FTC, the SEC, uh, the president, everyone is talking about cybersecurity and they now understand the repercussions. I think why they're now concerned about it more than ever isn't just because security is really hard and all the traditional things and all the history. No, I think the the amazing 30 years of economic boom that we just went through is now changing. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can't have that forever. That's why, you know, why do you have recessions? Because the market has to course correct. Uh, I'll, I'll give a, a, an example for cybersecurity. The moment you see so much money in the hands of VCs that you then see features being funded over products and solutions, you know there's too much money. Right. And that's generally right, meaning a a a bull whether it's whether it's cybersecurity or a strong bull market you know things have to course correct um and you know so within our lifetime we've seen a, a recession roughly every 10 years you know right. for the last <laughs> since the the dot-com bus but my point here is that things are changing on a planetary scale m- meaning the nation the the planet's nations uh it, it it's it's fairly obvious i think to everyone that China, Russia, the Cold War hangover countries, I'll call them, North Korea, Iran, uh, even Cuba, which is involved in the ransomware game. Right. They're still here and they're continuing to prove that they don't want to play nice in the globalized system that the last 30 years proved so strong. And you can even see it in the the elections uh, of both sides for the last 20 years. Americans continue to vote for two things, uh, populist presidents um, and presidents that are pulling the United States in a direction of of self-dependence, meaning we have our own food, we have our own fuel, you know, we can take care of ourselves. Yep. We're essentially not in the position that Germany and many other countries find themselves in. Well, this lesson is, is hard for everyone. Uh, because now, again, it's proven that we can't trust, you know, China's, Russia's. And so you're seeing a deglobalization yeah. to some degree. Yeah, and there's the question a will be, Yeah, there, there absolutely is. And the question will be, how bad is that? You know, will it be, you know, and I won't get into the possibilities there. But it is, I think it's changing the level in, uh, of, uh, I'll say, paranoia or concern um, that the feds have in terms of how our economy and GDP might be affected. And so I think. That's why we're seeing so much push from a federal regulation level is if things did turn sour and I'm not being a doomsdayer and I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying this is preparation. And, you know, this country and many others have been through this before. And if you just read a book, you know, it's better to prepare than to be caught off guard. And so I think what they're doing is pushing for a level of preparation. If something did happen, meaning real world war and, and the U.S. involvement in it. That we want to be prepared as as well as we can uh, from an economic standpoint, and I think that is the reason why you've got such a federal regulation push on cybersecurity right now. I I don't no one I don't think really under, knows the the answer. Meaning you know all the little intricacies like how much do you disclose and what's the right level and all those things. No one knows that answer. Um, yeah. But you know just like PCI, they've got to start somewhere, and I think yeah. that's why you're seeing. It appears to me a concerted effort across a lot of different uh, federal programs pushing us in that direction. Yeah, and and there's a lot to unpack in what you said. I want to I want to pull on a couple of those threads and 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 splash in a little bit of of other references here. So so first of all, 
here we are with Putin in Ukraine uh, for the first time since, you know, the 90s. Uh, the word nuclear is being used when it comes to American and Russian relationships. Uh, we, we've seen a return to, to that realm, right? So that's, that's thread one. Thread two, I'm going all the way back to the Gulf War, the original Gulf War, Desert Storm, where the first thing we did was send in what at the time for us were relatively antiquated airplanes. And the reason we sent them in is they happen to have radar jamming equipment that, that met the quality of the Iraqi um, radar uh, they were, you know, they were on par with the radar that was being used. Basically, we we sent in uh, a bunch of uh, radar jammers before we did anything else. We we sent in non-combatant activity to cripple the infrastructure before we sent in the combatant activity, and that is the model that I fear cyber is coming to. It's not just that we can tackle each other's GDP now. It's not just that we can treat economy as critical infrastructure and through the mirror, you know, clicking on a keyboard affect that GDP and that and that critical infrastructure, that economic infrastructure. But precursor to actual warfare, look at what Russia did with Ukraine. There was all manner of cyber stuff taking place before the first troops crossed the border. Um, it's that same story as what we saw with Desert Storm and, and the radar. I, I think that, that, you know, there's two factors going on now. Precursor to actual traditional warfare and, and to your point, the GDP uh, as warfare. Um what do you th- what do you think about that aspect of it? Yeah, I th- I think there are a lot of variables uh, in this whole equation, and and that's certainly an aspect of it. You know, I, the U.S. has been trying to figure out, you know, from a warfare standpoint, how to how to be involved, uh, l- let's say, appropriately in in these proxy war type of situations, um, and they seem to have gotten it right with with Ukraine. Um, and the only thing I'll I'll say there is. You know, you can see how much the feds have been pushing U.S. companies. Look at all the ISACs and ISALs that now exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, they feel like sharing and intel lessons they learned during World War II are the way to win. And, you know, they continue to push that. It's the same involvement in NATO. You know, why is NATO grown to be so powerful and why is that momentum there? Um you know, because it allows you to do a lot of things. It allows you to put uh, serious pressure on other countries. I mean, we've been alive quite a while at this point, Alan. And I mean, when was the last time we saw sanctions actually, you know, work this effectively? And I think that's that, that's really changed the dynamic. So right. there's there's a lot of history on this planet, but there are some new things happening right now. And that's why I think, uh, again, I think there's a level of paranoia. The feds can't just come up with another level of compliance or, you know, this magical thing that everybody has to chase. So I think that's why, you know, kind of uh, under the radar, so to speak. And again, someone might laugh and and think this is all painfully obvious, but I mean, I I bet you there's a huge group of people that have never heard of the CFPB uh, and and they're they're pushing like crazy, along with, like I said, FTC and SEC. Yeah, well, yeah, the Uh, new SEC proposal, we've already done a show on that uh, here at the Cyber Ranch, and and that's very much uh, an effort from a centralized federal position to impact and affect anybody publicly traded, any, any organization that's publicly traded, you know, that clearly has an investment in protecting GDP. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that for a moment. Cause I want to give you the, the FTC example. Yeah. Um, and we all know the SEC proposal, uh, but the FTC example is really new. Uh, everybody of course worked up about the Uber CISO situation, right? The, uh, we also know uh, over a half dozen CEOs have been fired along the way for serious yep. breaches. Um, and there was a, uh, uh, it was a, I believe a wine company. Uh, you might recall the company here. Um, I don't even want to pretend to, to say it. I'll probably get it wrong. But anyway, um, they had a large data breach and the FTC pegged the CEO with a, with almost a, I don't even know how to say it, a, like a house arrest sort of situation almost. If the CEO goes to another company or another two companies for however long, I don't know how long it sticks with him, he has to put in place a data protection program at any company that he operates due to a breach at the company he's currently at. Yeah, this is the first time they put the rider on the person, not the company. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, That's... Uh, if, if you ask me, that's just as big a news as, as the Uber CISO debacle. I, I um, think it's even bigger news. I, I would I would wager the same thing. Um, 
I, I think they're looking to make examples, uh, you know, whether it's Joe, whether it's the CEO, and I think they're going to be making more. And again, you can't make a big concerted effort and, and call it operation this or project that. So they're making, I think, a very understated push and they're, they're trying to push as much as they can in preparation uh, for what, of course, nobody can predict. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the the writing on the wall that I've seen, so to speak. All right, we're going to pause right there really quickly for a word from our sponsor, Over the Top Texas Style. Howdy, y'all. Asset management for IT and security sure ain't easy, and our networks are fixing to get more complex. But I reckon there's a better way of doing things, and it starts with Axonius. Axonius helps you lasso everything in your environment, devices, users, software, and more to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action. You want a free walkthrough of the platform? Head on over to axonius.com get dash a dash tour. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash get dash a dash tour. Yeah, I, I would agree that, that, that this is definitely due to a centralized vision. And, I, you know, you have to think about... Um, you know, there's there's other threads that weave into all of this too, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna dip out of the strategic view and drop into a very brief tactical moment. You mentioned Cuba and ransomware. Uh, North Korea's Lazarus Group. There is a strong argument put forth that the Korean military, the North Korean military, is in fact funded by cybercrime. Like like you know, military budgets are huge. And that mm-hmm. there's enough actual cybercrime taking place coming out of North Korea that they are actually funding a national military program with various and sundry cybercrime efforts. And and we know for a fact that a bank in Bangladesh, this was back in 20, was it 2016? Yeah, 2016, $100 million stolen from a bank in Bangladesh by the Lazarus Group, the North Korean APT. Um Think about that for a moment. The fact that cybercrime's scope and scale is big enough to actually fund a military program for a nation state who then mm-hmm. in turn can use, you know, nuclear threats. And obviously we've heard about the missiles flying, uh, you know, flying near Japan. Um, you know, they, they've got their own nuclear threat capability, but but they're also building and funding a cyber warfare using cybercrime. Right. In other words, cybercrime to fund cyber warfare. It becomes yep. self-serving, and and so this ties back into everything we've talked about. But it's just it's a tactical moment that feeds the strategic that I think also needs to be on the table when we have these conversations. Uh, yeah, I would agree with. I I would say don't prove to me that that's what they're doing. Prove to me that they're not. Uh, right. It, it it seems pretty obvious, and uh, yeah, I think that's where Cuba picked it up as well. Uh, and I would say, you know, the 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 issue with the Russian. Uh, and Ukraine situation, of course, is that we all are, are aware of what Russia's capability has been in the past. Um, now, I think when Obama essentially came out and said, hey, if, if you mess with us too badly, meaning if you, if you mess with our power or water or, you know, I think that's why the pipeline situation was so sticky. You know, at some point, if it involves the U.S., you know, their their response is just going to be, hey, we're going to drop bombs on you because you messed with us. And and. That's always been the fear with cyber war is going over, you know, stepping over that line. No one is quite sure where that line is. But uh, I think as the years have have gone by, uh, they've figured it out a bit more. Um, And I think that's why, you know, everybody was expecting a lot of, you know, cyber activity with the whole Ukraine invasion. And it it just didn't occur outside of Ukraine to the extent I think any of us really thought. And that's that's the reason. So I. I would say, given the level of paranoia across all these countries, China's, Russia's, U.S.'s, et cetera, that, that folks are doing what they normally do and they're preparing. Um, yeah. You know, if again, I don't want to be a doomsdayer and and say something's going to happen. But if anyone's ever wondered what it felt like leading up to World War One in, in terms of the mood and, you know, the the overall feeling, um, I would say this is probably the closest we'll ever see you know, where. Hopefully it doesn't go uh, in that kind of direction, but the, the, uh, it, it's the things are tense, um, you know, and, and I think that's why we're, we're seeing the the push we are. And I think again, I, I would say for, you know, what do you take away from this conversation? One, if you haven't been paying attention to geopolitics, it's a huge aspect of cybersecurity. I would say it is the biggest thing 
that any CISO needs to be aware of in terms of situational awareness. Uh, and I would also say the, the, uh, the push from the feds, I think, will continue, and and they're going to continue to look for people and companies to make examples of. Yep. Um, so you know, be be ready and be wary. And and hey, to the the article you recently wrote, Alan, you know, you just have to do the right thing. Uh, make sure you're in it for the right reasons, and make sure you can defend both yourself and your company uh, in a in a very transparent and uh, you know air quotes, moral way. Yeah. Um, because that's the best any of us can do right now. There's just way too much uncertainty. Yeah, there is. There is. So I want to, I want to unpack this World War One precursors thing a bit. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover what I think were sort of the precursors to World War One happening. Um, first and foremost was all the mutual defense alliances, right? You mess with them, you're messing with me sorts of alliances, but all over the board in all directions, such that as soon as anybody got messed with, multiple other parties would get brought in, right? And today, I think we still have that, right? You mentioned NATO's power. We still have that. The second factor was the imperialism um, conflicts in in the colonies, right? This was imperialist nations battling over the resources of other places on the planet, Africa, parts of Asia, etc. And then we had the Monroe Doctrine, where the U.S. had basically stated, you know, this was 1823, we're talking almost 100 years before World War I, but it had persisted for that long. Uh, We're not going to mess with European affairs as long as you don't come over here and mess with the Americas, right? So this imperialism conflict that was happening precursor to World War I was Africa and Asia. It was not Latin America. It was not South America, Central America. It was not the U.S. It was not Canada. It was on the other half of the planet, right? The Monroe Doctrine was holding at that point. Uh, and then basically, you know, we declared any European interference in the Americas will result in hostility from the U.S., right? Like, like you know, if we see it as hostility, we're, we're coming back at you. And that's exactly what happened with World War One, right? Um, once the Sorry, European... Alan, I, I, yeah. I can't tell if you're talking about over 100 years ago or right now. <laughs> and that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Except now the imperialism is very different than it used to be, right? Cyber and, and, and the and the you know, this idea that economy is critical infrastructure. What does modern day imperialism look like, Dan? Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've got anecdotes and examples. I don't know that I have a, I don't know that I have a definition, but, um, you know, you can see, I'm going to pick on China. I, I, I think they're probably the best example of this. Uh huh. Um, they've been going after tons of islands. Uh, they've been building, um, you know, essentially more fake islands, expanding the islands that they're after and, and setting up military presences. Um, it's a huge wasted effort, frankly, because those things would fall very quickly in a meaningful war situation. Um, however, it is it is a form of traction for them. It's it's mild saber rattling. But really what it is, is them flexing their muscle um, and, and, you know, to their neighbors, you know, to the Vietnams, Japan's. Uh, South Korea's, Singapore's, et cetera. Uh, and they are investing heavily in Africa. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, essentially it is, they've, they've got Ethiopia hooked so bad with so much debt. Um, it is a really sad and unfortunate situation. Uh, but they've got their hooks. I would say that is essentially modern uh, colonialism. And, and, you know, it's obvious that Z wants to make a run for Taiwan. I, I, frankly think he probably already would have if it wasn't for uh, Putin making the disastrous Ukraine move. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, the U.S. position is is much the same as it was. You know, you don't you don't mess with our allies. Otherwise, you mess with us. And that's right. that's where that's where all of this is is getting, uh, you know, both scary and, and there are so many unknowns because. Right. There's a very fine line, as we were just talking about. Um, your description of World War One was was perfect. Um, yeah, because you just don't know what how the dominoes might fall. Right, right. And 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 to your point, you know, this modern you know GDP as infrastructure world, it's not like there's this massive Chinese military presence in Ethiopia. There's a massive Chinese uh, financial activity. In Ethiopia, right? Yep. Occupying armies is no longer required for modern imperialism for the same reason that 
you know, GDP is critical infrastructure. It's also it's also the weapon and the occupation technique, right? It's it's become it's become a, a cash based rather than a body based warfare. Um, uh, you just said a, a key thing here, and uh, for folks interested in these topics, I would highly recommend uh, Peter Zihan. Uh, he's probably one of the most influential folks in in geopolitics at the moment, and his specialty is demographics. And that's, I, I think, what you just alluded to is is why we're seeing the actions we are out of China and Russia uh, and so many countries around the planet. It, it's a fascinating uh, paradox we're in right now. We have the largest human population on planet Earth ever. And yet so many of the countries, Russia and China being great examples, um, have, have, have an aging, a huge aging population and not yeah. a, a lot of young people. And that changes the dynamic in terms of what you can do with warfare. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, historically it's been a... And you can see Russia doing it right now. They, The only advantage they have against Ukraine at this point is numbers. And if you look at Russia historically, uh, every war they've ever won, for the most part, was due to just throwing numbers at it. However, after Russia does this, they're... You know they're essentially through, right? They're they're not going to have uh, a lot of young people. They don't have the the engineers and the specialty specialty labor to keep up their infrastructure. I saw an article the other day about China even potentially not going after Taiwan, but maybe even going after uh, Eastern Russia. Uh, and oh, and you know, yeah. So things are changing right now, not just because of. Uh, the economics and the history, but things are changing because the natural resources that nation states have historically had, right? You just everything, water, food, fuel. Well, people are one of those dynamics, you know, it's called human resources for a reason. Um, and without humans, you, you can't do anything with those other resources. Right. And so I think that's why we're seeing a different level of investment and, and desperation, frankly, from both Russia and China. At the end of the day, the problem with Russia and China is they industrialized way too quickly. You know, they had a very bright flame and it's burning out. And and China might be the greatest example of that that we've ever seen. Uh, you know, it's it's like it's like building muscle, you know, old muscle sticks. And if you don't, if you do it too quickly, it just fades right away. And and that's the issue I think we've seen with both Russia and Chinese economies. So yeah, they're they're trying different things. They're looking to influence the world differently, uh, and they're looking to build up uh, other ways and uh, uh, to to get leverage on their neighbors and and on the world stage. Yep. And and it's interesting. The nuclear threat came out at what I'm considering to be the tail end of Ukraine. Um. Nuclear wasn't mentioned at first, right? Um, Putin's Putin's getting a little desperate. It feels like to me. Yeah, I think North Korea has also kind of proven a formula. You know, yeah. anytime North Korea needs or wants something, you know, they they start flaunting the nuclear. BS right, they lob and, a missile. Yeah, exactly. And Putin is in such a uh, he he's really put himself in a crappy spot. Uh, so yeah, it it I don't. It's surprising because, frankly, there have been very few times in history, you know, even during the heights of the Cold War, where we really saw it get that serious, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis, obviously. Right. Uh, you know, it's I, I think it also shows, uh, once again, the level of desperation from these. These Putin and Z are, you know, they're to the point of, of the, the classic. uh you know, let them eat cake sort of scenario. That's not historically accurate, but it's it's the mood in which they're in. They're so separated from the real world that that they are living in, that they govern the whole night. You know, in other words, yeah. they've cut themselves off. It's it's a very North Korea type. They're moving more and more towards North Korea. They don't have proper intelligence reaching them. Nobody wants to tell them bad news. Uh, we're seeing things that have played out you know, many, many times throughout history playing out once again in in countries like Russia, China. And it's, you know, <laughs> there's a reason why everybody, you know, makes all the, uh, the the history quotes over and over and over again. None of this is new. 
And if you want to predict what's going to happen, it's it just pick up an old book because yeah. these guys are these guys might be coming up with new ways to uh, influence the world stage and make themselves relevant. But in terms of uh, a nation's collapse, uh, boy, they're they're reading the same old book, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good summary and conclusion. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I hope our listeners have, have stayed on for the ride. Uh, I definitely enjoyed this one. I've got one question for you, Dan, that I ask every guest at the end of a show. And obviously, with everything we've just discussed, we're sort of switching gears completely here. But cybersecurity. Let's return to that briefly. I'm going to give you a magic wand, and you can wave that magic wand, and you can change any one thing about the world of cybersecurity. And given that we've been talking geopolitics, it could be something that broad-reaching. It could be, you know, you, you want to change the way firewalls are configured. Anything. People, process, technology, ecosystem. What do you want to change in cybersecurity if you could wave your magic wand and change that one thing? I don't know what the one thing would be, uh, but I know the one area. And it would definitely be um, the involvement uh, of VCs and the way our industry is, is funded and supported. Um, obviously we're all in business to, to make money and to have success, but the VCs need to be invested in, in some way or manner. There was actually a big Twitter thread uh, around this. Um, Katie Masuris was posing the questions, should the VCs of, you know, early stage startups, uh, that have breaches be, you know, held accountable or liable somehow. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And I, I, I love, you know, I don't know the, I don't know the answer to any of this. But I do know that there is, you know, when you've got so much money floating around and people are talking about recession and you literally see VCs on Twitter saying, I've got money. You see, you see them on LinkedIn. I've got money. Right. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether we're putting the money in the right places. Right. Uh, has, is security really any better for any little feature getting funded? Uh, are the, are the security better because we have several uh, technology spaces that are just insanely overcrowded and very difficult to ascertain and discern what you're buying or who you should buy it from. SIM being a great example, cloud right. being a great example. Uh, you and I have sold and bought a lot of product and it, it is it is more difficult than ever to figure out you know what tech to buy and and what's going to fit and, and all those things. So I don't know what the, an the, the answer is and I'm not picking on VCs. I'm saying that's where I see the problem, I don't see the problem. I, I, I think the technology is not my complaint at this point. I, I right. think the technology is has come a long way, even though it looks very uh, cyclical. And, you know, a lot of what is is new is, uh, is, is just the same old thing rehashed somehow. But again, I would highlight, you know, um, <laughs> why do we have so much capital and are we actually putting the capital in the right place? Because I think right now most of security's problems are, are human related, not necessarily technology related. And if I would point to the whole AI ML nonsense and security that was so hot years ago, right. that's fizzled out. Um, and you know, what, what are most people saying? Build a boring company, right? You know, as Axonia said years ago, you know, we're the Camry of the industry. I, I thought right. that was brilliant. It, yeah. I don't care what the company is. We still haven't solved problems from, you know, 20 years ago in, yep. in some cases. Make, so, making the unsexy sexy is, is, is where it needs to be for at least for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say the VCs have a, a huge part to play there. Um, so I'm, I'm not calling them out uh, necessarily like as, as, as some evil or, or bad. Uh, but I'm saying there's a lot of eyeballs, I think, on VCs right now. And, and you know, why companies are let me I'll, I'll, I'll mention this to you, Alan, uh, before we go. If if you're a serial entrepreneur in, in security, you know, when you originally founded your first company, let's say it's probably because you were a technology expert. And you understood a problem really well. You know, right. That's why the practitioner space is so crucial to have experience in, because it's very difficult to build tech or build a company to serve a problem if you've never actually lived the problem. Right. And every time I see a new startup and there's a central a, a serial entrepreneur at the head of it, I'm immediately not impressed because, you know, VCs love to give money to the exact same people over and over and over again right. because it's just an ATM machine for them. And, and these are people who are getting further and further from the actual living of the problems as they, as that, they progress with each iteration. 
that's my problem. So it's taken us a few minutes to get to what I would want to fix. That's the problem. Um, serial entrepreneurs are, that might be core to the issue. Um, I think the companies that really get people excited, I mean, look at how many CISOs, uh, yourself included, you know, have, have gone to the, the vendor side or have founded companies. Right. And I think, I think that is more of the mood right now. Uh, you know, Hey, show me someone that actually understands my problem, not someone that can build a company. Right. Right. And that's a very, very different nuance versus uh, a lot of the traditional funding models. It is a very different nuance because the current model is, Hey, I'm a, I'm a big V I've got a huge fund and I can't tell you how many of these are out there. I've got a huge fund. I can fund anything I want. And I'll put that product, whether it's good or not, in front of 20 CISOs and a portion of them will buy it. And once it's in a couple, once you got a couple big logos, it's off to the races. Now, right. somebody might say, well, isn't the market going to course correct and naturally figure that out? It will, you know, it will. However, that will take time. And generally speaking, you know, you'll just get the, the tech will get bought out and rolled into something right. else. I, I'm and, reminded and, of a friend who has just switched from practitioner to founder. But he chose as his partner a serial entrepreneur. So the VCs are attracted to the serial entrepreneur because that's the person who's demonstrated success and is right. most likely to get them their investment, you know, back with profit. Somebody who's done it before, you you bet on a horse who's won a race before. That's that's the incentive for the VCs there. But to your point, the founder who's a former practitioner who actually sees a real problem and wants to solve that real problem. Well, you partner those two together and you now have the winning combo, I think. And and I've got a friend whose startup is exactly that. He was a practitioner. He saw a problem. He wanted to solve that problem. He went and found a serial entrepreneur to partner with to make it happen. And so the VC money is rolling in and the real problems are being solved simultaneously. Yep. Maybe that's the bridge right there. Well, I think the other bridge we're seeing right now is more and more CISOs uh, at the board level, yes. which I think is, is I think we'll be seeing that uh, for you know the next ten to twenty years, yeah. If the SEC uh, and, has their way, it's definitely coming, right? For sure. Yeah, that's the interesting. Sorry to add on to this, but I think that's the interesting dynamic here. The CISO position has always been fighting for that seat at the table. Funny enough, I think we might actually get the seat at the table due to federal regulation. Yeah, and and that's that's where my excitement of the SEC proposal comes from. Uh, yeah, it might create a lot of noise, and it might not actually make anything better. However. Uh, it might get security the the seat at the table or the the level of visibility and involvement that we've been you know all of everyone's been talking about for so long. Right. Uh, so it, you know, I again, I wasn't picking on the the, the VCs. I'm just I, I think there's I think there's an issue to be uh, aware of there. Uh, you know, why is the market needing to correct itself? You know, hey, security was a, a macro environment of that, um, you know, of that bullish market. And, uh, you know, how many times have we seen the market consolidate? Uh, and it, this is, we're, we're so cyclical in this industry. It's, it's almost funny. Yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, we're just seeing that. I think we're seeing that play out again, but hopefully we're learning some things along the way. Yeah. I, I think the theme of this entire episode has been cyclical, right? I mean, we're talking about precursors to World War One. We're talking about the Monroe Doctrine uh, and, and we're visiting all this in a cyber context, right? What goes around comes around. Um, all right, no, well, Dan nothing, Holden. Nothing is new. Nothing is new. That's exactly it. Dan Holden, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>